I think in the process of translation, it is one of loss and it is one of, you know, of grief, you know, if you love both. Yeah. But in the balance, there also has to be something gained. Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today in the program, we have two people from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's Play On Project. Elise Toran, the playwright, and Julie Felice Dubiner, the dramaturg, and their project is The Merchant of Venice. Hello, ladies. How are you? Very well. Hello. Very good. Thank you. Good morning. Excellent. Elise is a playwright, director, translator, and her plays have been produced in the United States, Europe, Japan, Cuba. In addition to that, for over 20 years, Elise has created cross-cultural exchanges with Russian and American theater artists. As an associate director at the American Place Theater, Elise co-founded Literature for Life, a highly successful theater literacy program now nationwide. And in addition, she developed Tony Award-winning spoken word poet Lemon Anderson's Toast in County of Kings at the Public Theater, which also performed at the Spoleto Festival and venues around the world. Her latest work, Hatui, Memory of Fire, is a Cuban nightclub opera in Yiddish, with music by Frank London, and it had its inaugural production of the Opera de la Calle in Havana in March of 2017. Hello, Elise. Hello. That is a challenging bio to, to read. <laughs> well, it is, but it's, and it's only partial, but it's an amazing body of work, Elise. Help us out with this Spanish and That's Yiddish. That's what I was going to do. So the, it's Atue, and he is the indigenous folklore hero of Cuba, and trying to resist the Spanish in 1511 and has become a symbol of liberation for Cuba ever since. So it's Atue. And the opera company is Opera de la Calle. They are opera of the street. Their mission is to bring opera to the people of Cuba. And they do it in the streets, they do it in theaters, and they're amazing. Is there a big tradition of performing operas in Yiddish in Cuba? Zero. And in fact, <laughs> they actually, they requested that we translate the Yiddish into Spanish because it is their story and they wanted it to connect to their audience. That's incredible. And were you one of the first people in Cuba? I mean, it hasn't been open for very long. We were, I think, the first collaboration where this was an inaugural production with a Cuban company. So Frank London and I were there several times as collaborators and really creating the piece together and were first North Americans at a Cuban press conference. And Well, you're a member of, a, of an exclusive club. <laughs> yes. And Julie Dubiner is also joining us. I have some information on Julie Garrett. Do you want me to yes. share with her? Yes, by all means. All right. Tell me about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Julie is the Associate Director of American Revolutions, the United States History Cycle, which is another project at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in addition to Play On. Am I correct, Julie? That's correct. Right. And at Oregon, Julie has served as dramaturg for Beauty and the Beast, The Wiz, Sweat, the Coconuts, The Liquid Plain, and Party People. At Actors Theatre of Louisville, she collaborated on more than 40 productions and projects in the regular season and the Humana Festival and co-created Rock and Roll, The Reunion Tour. She's been a guest dramaturg at the Kennedy Center and KCACTF, the O'Neill Playwrights Conference, the New Harmony Project, and elsewhere. Julie is the co-editor of two anthologies of Humana Festival plays, co-author of The Process of Dramaturgy, A Practical Guide, and she holds a BA from Tufts and an MFA from Columbia. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. So, Julie, in the correspondence leading up to this interview, I have to share this with our listeners. When we send you an email, we get an out-of-office <laughs> reply, and it says that if we're having an American Revolution emergency, that there is a number that we can call. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so I wondered, what might constitute an American Revolution emergency? Is this a political event or is it a literary event? I know. My head just kind of exploded with resistance jokes, but I'll let that go. Yeah, it's just my out-of-office message. But I love it. It's been one of those things where I've had the same out-of-office message for the last six years. And the number of fabulous responses I've gotten to it really make me disinclined to ever change it. The American Revolution Project then has been going on for how long? It's going into its 10th year now, and I've been here for seven years. So these are two projects that are going on simultaneously at Oregon. Well, we're here to talk today about the Play On Project, which is what brings Julie and Elise together. So what is the Play On Project, and how did you both become involved? The Play On Project here is, it's an incredibly large project that's being spearheaded by Louis Douthat, along with her associate, Taylor Bailey. And they're commissioning, it's like 39 plays with 40 playwrights and everybody gets a dramaturg. And the goal of the project is to translate Shakespeare's plays into modern English. And it's being supported by incredibly generous donors who have always wanted such a thing. And I think almost all of the first drafts are in now. It's an incredibly huge project. And Louie and Taylor have been traveling the country doing workshops and readings and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, of course, when it rolled out, there was a lot of pushback from some quarters, including some of the folks who got commissioned for it of like, why are we doing this? But I think in the end, and, and certainly, you know, when we get to talking about Merchant of Venice, I think for all of us who've been involved with it, it's been incredibly valuable. Not always easy and sometimes painful, but pretty valuable. So much to talk about, so much of interest here. So the, this project is 40 plays, and each play is being worked on by a team that consists of a playwright and a dramaturg. Which uh, role do each of you occupy around Merchant of Venice? This is Elise, and I would be the playwright. <laughs> and Julie's the dramaturg. Yeah, and Louis at the time had an office right next door to mine, so when we were she was putting together teams and and figuring out who would do what play. And I had worked with Elise many years ago at a theater in Philadelphia on a project of hers called The Green Violin. And so when Louis was talking about Merchant of Venice, Elise came to mind. And so that's sort of how this came together. And then I was really thrilled when Elise asked me to be her dramaturg. And how long have you been working on Merchant of Venice together? Elise has done most of the work. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I guess it's about a year and a half since Louis called me and said, would you like to translate The Merchant of Venice? And I was like, what? <laughs> um, Could you elaborate on that initial response? <laughs> the idea of tampering in any way, shape, or form with a poet's language that I love and enjoy so much just the sound of. And I worked on spoken word poetry where I don't understand necessarily every word. I work in foreign languages where I'm trying to structure pieces so American audiences are excited and happy listening to Japanese without translation. And so the idea of doing any kind of, quote, damage to the poetry of Shakespeare was pretty abhorrent. That said, Louis said, this is an experiment. It may be a good idea. It may be a bad idea, but we will learn something. And I think that is tremendously profound and has been so true about this whole process. And I think I'm now 
you know, coming through the other side and starting to hear an audience's reaction to the translation and may become a convert to the idea of modern language translations being available. But that's my journey. And The Merchant was certainly Julie and Louis pegged it. It's the one play that I was fascinated by and would not say no to. So you're a year and a half in now. You have a draft that you've shared with audiences in the form of staged readings here and there around the country? Yes, we did it from the very first draft, a quick pickup reading in-house in New York City, which Julie was there for in January, which was really revelatory. I asked for a very diverse cast and also a cast of actors that had a range of experience with Shakespeare that was, some people had never touched it and some people were kind of master Shakespearean actors. So I was interested in hearing the language, the new contemporary language with different kinds of actors. And then we did a, a reading that was in Boulder, Colorado in March that was part of a new play festival that they do each year. And there was several days of rehearsal with a cast and then a public reading and then discussion afterwards. So that's where I am. And those were incredibly informative in terms of listening and also receiving reactions to the translation. So this play, is it called The Merchant of Venice? It is called The Merchant of Venice. The primary rule that you were going into this process with is this is not an adaptation. It is not setting it in some different time period. It is truly a updating the language whatever that would mean to a playwright or translator. I've done a lot of translations from Russian, and I have to say I I approached this as a translator. And often we're hearing plays in the Play On project for the first time uncut, and that's a joy. Because so often in production, directors and dramaturgs will make choices and cut out whole scenes. This is a baseline from which I think in production you could adapt or cut or change or call it something different. But this particular task is very is a very humble one. So yes, it's the Merchant of Venice. So Julie, in your role as the dramaturg, how do you contribute in the collaborative process? You know, it's funny with this one, it's not to say that I'm lazy. Elise really did the heavy lifting on it. And so just to build on what Elise was saying about the directive for the project, Louis was very clear with all the folks that she brought in to play on to preserve the meter, mm-hmm. to not do cutting, to not do adapting. It really was supposed to be a direct translation. And so in a lot of ways, the real work fell on the playwrights for that because, you know, I can look things up and I can respond to things. But for the most part, and especially since Elise is a master translator, a lot of that work, you know, she can do herself. So, you know, when she had a draft done, she would send me her draft and there would be, you know, like a couple of words that she was noodling around with or a couple of things that I had questions about. But Elise's touch was so light and beautiful that it was really a pretty easy gig for me. <laughs> This work was incredibly challenging because I very much, looking at the text, wanted to keep the iambic pentameter, which some playwrights have done and some haven't done in their choices. But I felt in this play was the heartbeat and that Shakespeare himself was sacrificing word order, anything, so that that rhythm of what is poetic text is present like a heartbeat. And so that I did honor while trying to untangle some of the conundrums of meaning 
to make it more accessible to a contemporary ear to follow what the characters are actually saying, but keeping the, the poetry. Wow, and, and untangling, that's such an apt metaphor. I, I imagine that in this project, you might discover that as you change one single word, it might have repercussions that might reverberate down the line. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Can you tell us what are some of the choices that you might have been tempted to make in terms of altering a word or a phrase and and then decided to go back and preserve the original? Good question. And a good example may be, I think, Antonio's speech at the very beginning of the play, I probably spent more time on that speech than the whole play because it was also, how do you get into this? And the word that I was wrestling with is sad sadness or depression. The phenomenon that he's describing in contemporary understanding would be depression. Is that too clinical in our ear? Is that an effective update? Sadness has a different sound, a, a powerful source. So I wrestled with that and tried many different combinations and, and landed on something that keeps sadness that moves throughout the play, but has one place where the word depression is used, and which I think sets up Antonio's dilemma immediately for a contemporary ear. So that was a back and forth and a back and forth and landed in a compromise, but it all keeps meter. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a daunting task. You say in our pre-show discussion, you said that Shylock's speeches were the ones you intervened in the least. And why do you think that is? Well, I was very interested in, first, the character is so beautifully written that most of it seemed so clear. And I find this a lot as a translator where some of the strongest writing is, it's either the easiest translation job, or in this case, you just don't have to do much. So the alterations were very, very, very minor. And I also was interested in approaching the piece from a sense that his language might be more archaic, and that I liked having his his language be of an older, kind of more ancient order, or to feel, to have the dignity and the strength of being quite different from the modern world of the merchants and of Portia and Bassanio and this kind of fluency that has a greater degree of relativism and ease, whereas he's fierce and deeply principled. And I thought the contrast in language would be helpful in a contemporary ears hearing that. That's such an interesting observation. And I think in Shakespeare, as much as any play, or perhaps even more than some, the character is the word and the word is the character. So once you begin to alter the words, you are by definition changing things about the character. And were there other choices that you made regarding character in the way that you updated the language? I'm thinking of Lancelot, who has a very particular way of speaking and belongs to a a very different class? Great question. I was trying to keep him funny. So Lancelot and Graziano would be characters that I probably did the most intervention with in order to have jokes land or to have their kind of irreverence or almost stepping out of a more neutral literary language. Graziano says ciao for now, for example. But I was allowing myself much more leeway with translating their speech than I was with Shylock. So often in Shakespeare, the clowns and the fools, their language is really dense and difficult and it's archaic. And a lot of the jokes that they're saying don't land. And I wonder whether, Julie, you were any help in that in that regard as well. 
I don't know that I was any help in that. I mean, I think one of the things Elise and I talked about a lot before she actually started the actual work, and just again, building on what she's already said, of just the distinguishing of character and sort of the definition of character and how you can do that with language. It's always hard with the clowns, right? Because the jokes are dumb and they don't hold up and <laughs> they, they don't make any sense. I so wish I'd been at the reading at the local company in Boulder, because in New York, to actually hear the clowns be funny and to see funny actors actually be able to be just themselves funny without having to contort themselves trying to explain the joke through the language was really exciting and really and as someone who loves comedy with a, a deep and open heart it was really really great did i answer the question i'm not even sure <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and then something god it made me really jealous for a minute of shakespeare's contemporary audiences for whom these jokes would have been more present and they would have been able to have the same enjoyment of seeing those actors how did you put it you put it so beautifully trying to express the joke through the language or contort themselves that was a beautiful way of putting it yeah and it's funny i came to dramaturgy through history and social history in particular and studying the audience of shakespeare's time is really fascinating and and sort of a great way to sort of figure out some idea of not just who people were and what they did but how they thought and i think when you look at these plays and i think elise represents this really well in her translation is that there's something in each of those plays for every segment of the audience. And there's not an assumption that every part of the play is for the entire audience all the time. And when you think about these plays being performed back in, you know, 15, whatever, 16, whatever, and you know that there was freedom of movement in the audience in a way that we don't have today, people getting up and down and people walking around selling oranges and people, you know, doing whatever disgusting things people did in theaters then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and also talking, talking yeah. through stuff. And I think one of the things that this translation does is that it actually gives me the whole play for once, that every part of the play is so clear now and every part of the play is so defined now that I'm not tuning out when the clowns come in because they don't make sense or I'm not tuning out when the poetry gets too high and fancy that it just becomes, you know, a, about listening to pretty words instead of action, you know, it's like, or whatever the different parts of the plays do. But I think by bringing it into the modern language in a weird way, it brings that whole audience together, the people who love the clowns, the people who love the high language and the people who are somewhere in between. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the play is better or worse or anything like that. I'm not putting a value judgment on it. It just brings everything to the front for anyone who is experiencing the play in contemporary language. I'm hearing a lot about the advantages or what you gain by the translation, and I think it's fantastic. And I would never have thought of some of these things, like seeing the whole play. But were there any moments in the translation when you were like, oh, I wish I didn't have to change this, or that the metaphors or the heightened language was diluted in some way? Because I think that is where people start to dig their heels in and say this project is, is a problem. I think certainly the whole beginning entrance into doing this was that for me. <laughs> and <laughs> it was kind of a huge resistance that I just had to, or leap, and just get mm -hmm. on with the work line by line, word by word. What I found most useful was actually a French language translation done, I think, in the 60s. And that kind of loosened my brain that 
this is translation that if I were a, a contemporary French person going to the Merchant of Venice, I'm not hearing archaic language. I'm hearing a literary language of you know, whatever the chosen translation is. And so it was actually looking at French and Russian, and I even looked at an Italian translation that kind of freed my mind in order to get down to actually doing the work. <laughs> And I always had the possibility of not changing it. So it's an interesting question. You know, you, you've well said that, you know, you change one word and then many things change around it. Well, sometimes you preserve a whole speech and just change one word. Or I was looking also for key entrance phrases that would set up a speech so that the audience would know, okay, I know what the action of the speech is at the beginning, and then I would not alter a lot of the poetic language or text. So you always would have the possibility of, of doing nothing. And certainly, I think Louis would have accepted, and may, there may be such, a playwright that decides not doing anything. We were, were given the kind of big rubric for the work of do no harm. So I think I felt as I progressed in the play that I was finding my rhythm with it more, and probably the last act, which is often considered, you know, why don't you just cut it? And I was expecting it to be very difficult to work on. It's where we return to the, the comedy after Shylock has been forced to convert. And it ended up being much more interesting. And I understood it within the context of the play much more from having worked through the language. But yes, certainly constantly you ran into... Am I diluting? And I, I think that feeling persisted until I actually heard actors working on the text and saw what was gained and then heard an audience listening to it. I, I was surprised at how much was gained. Can I just add something to what Elise mm. was saying or what you guys were talking about is there's been a very wide variance in, in what Elise has been calling intervention with the text with all of the translations that have come into Louis M. Taylor. You know, some people have gone really big and then some people have really just very lightly touched. Elisa's probably somewhere in the middle with her translation, from what I understand, compared to the others. As a dramaturg, you've been involved in many, many projects where directors have taken or been granted the creative license to interpret the text, but this is maybe the first time that the uh, Shakespeare community has been faced with the idea that a playwright could could take the same sort of creative licenses. And I think that's, for me, one of the most thrilling parts of the project, if not the most thrilling part of the project. You know, Louis had, in one of the talks that she gave when she was launching the project, uh, talked explicitly about that, and I'll paraphrase, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but she talked a lot about how, as a dramaturg, yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of, you know, high-concept Shakespeare and a lot of cutting this and Tempest where we moved all the acts around. You know, in grad school, we used to call it Shakespeare Underwater Naked Backwards. Um, <laughs> we've all done those projects, I think, as dramaturgs, and I think for playwrights, we're in such a real beautiful golden age for American playwrights right now. I mean, the arts are hard and everything's terrible and there's not enough time, there's not enough money and there's not enough opportunity and all of that is true. But I can't think of a better time for American playwrights than the time that we're having right now. And yet they don't get to live alongside these texts. And I think that Play On lives right there alongside that idea. And one of the things for playwrights is 
living with a text that dramaturgs so often get to do, playwrights don't get to do. And so this opportunity, I think a lot of the playwrights have been really excited about that, about living alongside another playwright like this, just for the sake of of being able to to live with the language and figure it all out. Yeah, Um, I think it's a huge gift. I just want to say that as a playwright, as directors and actors get to spend a lot of time with Shakespeare. But, you know, as a playwright, you don't have this opportunity of a really sustained engagement with another text. That alone has been fascinating. Wow, so we're unleashing on the American literary scene 40 playwrights <laughs> who have had the shared masterclass in Shakespeare. It'll be interesting to see how that changes the landscape of what's to come. We spoke with Kevin Rich. He's the artistic director of Illinois Shakespeare Festival, and he mentioned that he was very interested in seeing how this experience would inform the work of the playwright. Elise, do you think that this project will leave a mark on you as a writer? Oh, Absolutely. I think I had an interest in this project or in The Merchant of Venice and the opportunity to spend time with the real deal and its themes and its deep wrestling with prejudice and anti-Semitism was very, uh, yeah, it it will have a a big impact both on this specific play, The Thief of Venice, that I'm working on and, and in my work and what is possible in theater through language. But for me, I think as a playwright, it's just been definitely a masterclass for which I am so grateful. And then hopefully will be, you know, an ongoing engagement with the play and Julie and, you know, as these plays go out into the world and, and are, you know, either companions to productions that, you know, have, are using the original text or are being done, you know, in their own right. Yeah. And there's a publishing project in the offing as well for Louis and Taylor, which I think is going to be tremendously exciting. Like, I think one of the misconceptions about Play On has been that it, it's making the plays less difficult or less smart or whatever those criticisms are. And I think when you look at them side by side and you see what these genius playwrights have done with them, it's anything but. It's really just illuminating. And so having those side-by-sides available for students or for actors or for whoever, I think is going to be a tremendous gift to the field. I know our listeners are very curious, as am I, about what this sounds like. And you've chosen to share with us a speech today of Shylock's from Act 3, Scene 1. And this is the famous Ducket speech, correct? Yes. Who would like to read this for us? You're not going to have actors for this? (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what. I'll read the original version if you read the translated version. Sounds like a deal. That's perfect. So we're talking with Elise Toran and Julie Dubner about The Merchant of Venice and the Play on Translation Project. And we're going to focus in now on Shylock's speech in Act 3, Scene 1. And yeah, I'm going to read the original Shakespeare, and then we're going to hear the translated version of this speech. Sounds great. Let's hear it. Why there, 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 a diamond gone cost me 2,000 ducats in Frankfurt. The curse never fell upon our nation till now. I never felt it till now. Two thousand ducats in that, and other precious, precious jewels. Would my daughter were dead at my foot, and the jewels in her ear. Would she were hearsed at my foot, and the ducats in her coffin. No news of them? Why so? And I know not what's spent in the search. Why thou loss upon loss? The thief gone with so much, and so much to find the thief. And no satisfaction, no revenge, nor no in luck stirring but what lights on my shoulders, no sighs but of my breathing, no tears but of my shedding. 
I hadn't rehearsed that. <laughs> and here's the new Merchant of Venice. Yes. Why, there, 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 a diamond gone cost me 2,000 ducats in Frankfurt. The curse never fell upon our nation until now. I never felt it until now. 2,000 ducats in that diamond and other precious, precious jewels. I would my daughter were dead at my feet and the jewels in her ears. Would she were entombed at my feet and the ducats inside her coffin. No news of them? Why so? And I don't know how much is spent in the search. Why you loss upon loss. The thief has gone taking so much and yet it takes so much to find the thief and no satisfaction, no revenge. No, there's no ill luck stirring but what lands on my shoulders. No sighs but my own breathing. No tears but those I shed. That is fantastic. Whoa. Yeah. You Bring it great. a leaf, man. Yeah. <laughs> I really like it. Good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you see that it's not that different, but it just is tweaking some of the phrasing so that I connect with Shylock's meaning a teeny bit more. It is. It just it makes it just that much clearer. I think you've made a convert out of me. it's just gorgeous to hear these words interpreted in this way but obviously honored and respected so much but yet seeing them through kind of a lens yeah no i think one of the things that became really clear in listening to to the work when i got to hear it you know shylock is is such an angry guy (laughs) (laughs) but i think what comes through in elisa's translation is also his sadness that the the anger comes from a place of sadness in a way that I hadn't quite gotten from the original in the couple of times I'd read it or seen it before, that that really powerful sadness comes through. And I think that's a great speech to show it from, too. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started. For me, I think the Shylock-Jessica relationship is so important. Mm -hmm. And that I think that when Jessica betrays Shylock, the audience's heart has to break for him. And that's what allows us to understand and sympathize with his behavior from that point forward. But that depends on us caring enough about the relationship to be distressed when she destroys it. So we have to feel the love in order to feel the pain. Oh, I totally agree. And for me, this speech is I, I'm fascinated with Shylock of where are the mechanisms, you know, where loss turns into this hard, angry revenge, where the possibility of odd friendship or doing a deal at the very beginning of the play turns into the pound of flesh. And this feels to me, for the reasons that you were speaking of, pivotal, because it portrays the depth of his loss and and something that I think is very true in family relationships now, that often the intensity of emotion becomes expressed in money or inheritance or it doesn't have a, a direct wellspring to communicate its truth so becomes entangled in ducats and and that confusion feels very familiar to something that i think we all can relate to in what we've seen in families and and people now after hearing the reading in new york and as elise probably remembers i was pretty shaken up of hearing the whole thing it's pretty disturbing even though you know, we accept that Merchant of Venice is a problematic play and perhaps an anti-Semitic play and perhaps not, depending on who's interpreting it and who's cutting it and who's playing it. 
But hearing the whole damn thing out loud, it became really, I, I got pretty overwhelmed after hearing it. A public event was also very interesting in that how this particular play provokes such powerful discussion right now about race in mm -hmm. our own country. So what was interesting to me about the discussion is it was less so about the translation and more so about the play. And I think you hear through the lovely lyrical poetry of Portia and Bassanio, both that they are in, insightful characters, but also tremendously prejudiced and the cruelty throughout the play. And I would also add cunning to Portia and Bassanio as well, as far as an adjective to describe. Yeah, I always found it very gossipy and nasty. Like the Christian characters were a bunch of popular high schoolers playing with a rig system <laughs> and just pushing down anybody and making fun of anybody who wasn't on the inside, including the Moroccan prince, among others. But yeah, it's definitely a cruel play. Elise, you mentioned that you wanted both Shakespearean actors and non-Shakespearean actors to read your translation. Who excelled in the translation, the Shakespearean actor or the non-Shakespearean actor? I think both did. That was what was so interesting to me, is I had a spoken word poet who'd never encountered Shakespeare, but really connected to it, said, wow, if I had this way of entering into it, I would, you know, I'd be, I'd be reading Shakespeare, I'd be a Shakespeare convert. And he definitely did something kind of of his own to the meter. And then there was a wonderful British Shakespearean actor playing Shylock and that worked as well. I think he had a challenge in that, that he was so familiar with some of the phrases that the choices of, you know, when do you deviate, like the quality of mercy is not strained. Do you change that or do you just keep what is familiar in people's ears? So I think it's, it's interesting in terms of having a spectrum of different actors working on these projects. And from my point of view, what I loved is I, I can't answer your question. Well, I'm so excited to hear these words and to hear the way that they reveal these human truths. And I'm curious now about how our listeners around the country can engage with the Play On project. Where else will audiences be able to hear these plays? Next season at OSF, it's still very early in the planning process, but the goal next year is to read the translations of the Shakespeare plays that are in our season next year, which include Othello, Love's Labor's Lost, Romeo and Juliet, and Henry V. We probably should log on to the Play On website, and there might be some information on that. This is a fascinating project, and thank you so much, Elise and, and Julie, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for asking. It's been an, a delicious conversation, and your questions are so wonderful to consider. It has been a delight for us, too. Well, my name is Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.